Episode 260, Part 2, Chapter 7 and 8 of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 260, and the band played on. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, I am happy to be here with you this week, if only because it means that the kids are at band camp, (laughs) because I have not been sleeping, and my children are the reason why. But I am here, I feel like my voice is okay, and we have a lot of really cool stuff to get to. The first thing that I wanted to tell you about is something that has been cooking in the background for a really long time, and I am very excited to announce it. One of our listeners, Christine, sent me an idea a long time ago and said, I don't know if you would be interested in doing this for your subscriber supporters, but what if I created a pattern for an Altoid tin so that that tin could hold inside it? a tangram set, a crocheted tangram set. So we have a tin of tans. How cool is that? She has charted them with, uh, I think she said it was the American standard crochet charting stuff, but it also has written out directions. It is the most adorable little thing you've ever seen in your life. It's flat out genius. And if you've never seen what tangrams are, I will link to a general instructional kind of thing that uh, that she provides within the pattern as well. So, um, so all of that's there for you. So this is going out to subscriber supporters. Anybody who uh, has already joined or joins within the next two months, you will have access to this pattern. At that point, it will be removed from the page. It's going to be on the Chaucer page, and um, and then it'll go to her Ravelry store. Where, where everybody can get at it. So I'm very excited about this. And this is, this is one of those things that also goes out to the iPhone people. So it's a little special gift to all of you. I'm so excited because this is such a genius idea. You know, it's one of those things that when somebody says, hey, what if I did this crazy contraption with wings and jet engines? And you go, oh, why hasn't anybody ever thought of that before? This was one of those moments, and it's so adorable. So I'm oh, I'm so excited, and Christine is so excited, and I'm linking to her blog post. So you can go and see, if you haven't subscribed yet, and you're thinking about it, go take a look at her blog post, and you can see some really great pictures of what she hath wrought, because it is quite genius-ish. And I'm, I'm just, you can tell I'm in that giddy place where I'm so excited about it because it's really cool. There were also a couple things that popped up on Knitter's Review, and I thought, you know, some of you who aren't even knitters might find some of this kind of interesting. There's a, if you, if you aren't a subscriber to Knitter's Review, there's a, an 
e-newsletter that Clara Park sends out, what is it, every week? A couple times a week? And in this one, she mentioned something called a Coded Stories Project. Now, this is a Kickstarter campaign, and as you may or may not know, Kickstarter campaigns are uh, fundraising campaigns that people start to raise money for a project. And if you donate to that campaign, uh, there are certain levels of giftiness that you can receive for your donation. If the campaign is not fully funded, then you will not have to pay up. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Either you wind up giving money to a great cause and you get something fun out of it, or you wind up not having to give any money to an otherwise great cause because not enough people signed up for it and you're not out any money. So, great, right? Well, this one really caught my eye. This comes from the Chilean-born artist Guillermo Burt, who now lives in Los Angeles. I'm just reading to you from the Knitter's, um, Knitter's Review email. After noticing that many of the motifs used by the indigenous Mapuche weavers in Chile resembled barcodes exclamation point, he's been working on an art installation that bridges modern barcode technology and the Mapuche quest for cultural preservation. A documentary film crew has been accompanying him on his journeys and they're raising funds for their final push to complete filming and begin the doc- begin to bring the documentary to the public. The campaign ends on July 17th, so if you're listening in real time and if this sounds like something that you would want to support, preserving uh, indigenous culture being one of the big parts of this, I thought that might be something you'd be interested in. Also, if you like knitting historian Richard Rutt, there is now evidently a digital archive, kind of like how there's the Barbara Walker project where people have uploaded pictures of swatches. So the patterns themselves, you still have to buy the Barbara Walker book, but you can scan photographs with, I mean, skim with your eyes, photographs of swatches of those patterns on the website. And I have found the website, which you can also, you know, uh, click through on the categories. So if you're like, I need lace, I need double-sided lace. You can click double-sided lace when you find one and it'll pull up all of the swatches that have been tagged with double-sided lace. And can you tell what I've been working on lately? So that is awesome because now there's a Richard Rutt digital archive. And if you've never read Richard Rutt's book on the history of knitting, it's uh, quite a marvelous book. I know I talked about it a hundred years ago at the early beginning of the podcast, and here I am talking about it again because it's that good. I did want to let you know a couple of things. If you are a Neil Gaiman fan, you will be happy to know that he is going to go back and tell a story for the 25th anniversary of Sandman because that's how old we are. 25th anniversary of Sandman he is going to go back and tell the story that is only alluded to in uh, two different Sandman books. And that will be released, I think he said, October of 2013. So he's working on it now. He's very happy with the artist. And I am very happy with another Sandman coming out. If you have never experienced the joy of Sandman graphic novels, and if you, in fact, poo-poo graphic novels in general, I recommend you starting with Season of Mists. This is, I think, book four in the Sandman graphic novel series. And even though it's it's not the beginning, I, I recommend it for a couple of reasons. And the most important reason is that it is grandly mythic. 
and I'm not using either of those words casually. Uh, Neil Gaiman, if you haven't been turned on by any of his other books, is a sponge. And the man soaks up information about other stories and cross-sections of history and times and places like it's nobody's business. And it all winds up popping up in very strange ways in his writing. I don't think it's more clear anywhere than it is in Season of Mists, which is the story of Lucifer deciding that he no longer wants to run hell because he's sick of people showing up and saying, oh, I've been bad, beat me, hurt me, make me pay, when in fact we create our own hells. And that is simply what we do. He decides to quit. He leaves and he hands the key to hell to the Sandman to dream, who then has to determine who is a worthy owner for the key to the kingdom of hell. It's a very important job within this mythic structure that Mr. Geeman has created. And uh, it's a brilliant ethical conundrum that is played out on the pages of a graphic novel. The art is beautiful and sometimes disturbing, which for hell makes kind of a lot of sense. And I found it to be the single most useful tool as a teacher when I had disaffected suburban youths who would sit at the back of my room scowling and loathing my presence in their life, I would just casually walk by and drop this book on their desk and walk away. And I would make no comment. Well, it's pictures and they're bored. So what are they going to do? They start reading. And the more they start reading, the more intrigued they are by the whole thing. And eventually, every single one of them caved and came up and said, who's this character? That character? Oh, that's Bast. She's an Egyptian goddess. Oh, she's hot. Yeah, she is. She's hot. Who's this guy? Um, That's chaos, as in chaos and order. But they're not people. No, they're not people. But they're people here. Well, they're personified there. Well, what does personified mean? You get my point. Marvelous, 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 marvelous book. Um, The entire series marvelous. And here we are lucky enough to have Neil Gaiman handing us a gift of a story that went untold in the original series. I am linking to a video of him explaining this and reading from some of the original Sandman stuff. So if that floats your boat, you might like to have a little look-see. And then I wanted to read you a, a sweet little email that I got from a listener named Valerie. She, she wrote that she was very happy that my family was safe after our drama, our water drama here. Well, there's been a lot of water drama here lately. And she wrote, I enjoyed your description of the clams you saw at the beach. I used to live on Tybee Island in Georgia, where my mother was the director of the Tybee Island Lighthouse. The only obstacles between our house and the beach were a parking lot, a museum that fell under my mother's jurisdiction, and another parking lot. We would see the same clams there, but we called them, and I hope I do not butcher this, coquinas. A quick Google search told me that they are donax, or donax, of multiple varieties, and that coquina is a Spanish term that's used in Florida. Well, we live pretty close to Florida, and my mom lived in Florida during her childhood, so presumably that is where we carried the term with us. They were always a favorite with my mom and my sister and myself. We spent a lot of time on the beach regardless of the season. My mom has said on many occasions that it was the easiest way to entertain us, even if we couldn't get in the water. 
I've only been out to California once, so I'm not sure what you mean about the difference in sand. My biggest takeaway was that the California beach was cooler and grayer, but I was also told that we were a month or so early for the best of California beach weather. It is interesting because it is true that California beaches do have definitely gray moments and they are cooler, except when it is truly super hot. I mean, August is hot. It's hot at the beach, but you do get these wonderful foggy mornings. And I think it's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed my time as a kid on the beach in Southern California. We went to the Newport Balboa area. So we went to the Balboa fun zone at night, but during the day we were on the beach eating sandwiches with sand in them and having a ball. But I know that some of the most important time to me as a child and, and then as a teenager in those times that we spent at the beach was the early mornings. You know, you're up early. You don't want to wake anybody else up. So you kind of get up, you go read a book in the front room, and then mom or dad would show up. And you want to go for a walk? Sure, because you don't want to wake anybody up, so you're whispering. So you put on your flip-flops, or not, and you walk out the front door and onto the beach. And the sound of the waves, that rhythmic, pounding regularity, is so settling and awe-inspiring in the original sense. And the mist hanging over everything. Some days you couldn't even see the pier in the distance because the fog was so thick. And sound travels differently in that mist. And you can hear the seagulls calling like crazy from over by the pier where the fishermen are. And you walk down the beach in the water, next to the water. Doesn't really matter. The sand is cold and compliant and it molds to your feet and pushes you along. You go down, you get coffee on the pier and you talk. And I think probably some of my most important conversations as a teenager with both of my parents were held on those beaches in the mist with the surf pounding next to us. There's just something about that location that expects that of you. And we're going to a different beach this summer with my mom and my sister and her husband and my husband and the kids. And I'm kind of curious to see if there's going to be that same element, that same, if it's a beach connection or if it's a mist connection. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I love the beach and I love living close to an ocean again. I really have missed salt water. I like salt water. There's a smell in the salt water. And I like fishing, and my older son likes fishing too. We went pier fishing a bunch in Southern California. And uh, we'll take our fishing poles again this summer and see, see what can be watted. What the what, as it were. So I'm much relieved knowing that those little clammy things were coquinas or donax. Donax? D-O-N-A-X. I have no idea how to pronounce that. But, uh, but they do have names, and that, I think... Is important. I'm going to try and upload a video of the clams in my son's hands wiggling their little tongues because I finally was able to pull it off of my phone. So you'll get to see the marvelousness of the Coquinas. So this week I determined to play chapters seven and eight of book two of Gulliver's Travels. These are the concluding chapters to the Brobdingnagian section of the book. 
And I decided to do both of them at once for a couple of reasons. One is honestly because I was starting to get itchy to get on to the next section. But the other is because chapter seven is the end of the major satire. And I think it is the reason why so many people, this chapter, is the reason why so many people say, well, the Brobdingnagians are the moral ones and the Lilliputians are kind of the spoiled, petulant, small-minded people. And the other reason is because chapter eight is an adventure chapter. It's the escape because, you know, we have our routine set now. He, he leaves, he winds up somewhere else, he learns about the place, satire happens, he finds a way out and he gets back home. And that's the way all of these chapters will work. And I thought, you know, it's summertime, light summer reading, let's get an adventure chapter in there this week. And so, so that's why we're going to do it this way. However, some very complicated joke telling, and not joke haha, but joke uh, happens at the beginning of chapter seven. And so I wanted to do that same little thing that I did before, where I play you a section, and then I explain the stuff, and then I just keep, I play that, that section over again without stopping and, and just let it run into the rest of the chapter. Because it's, it happens again at the beginning. It's fairly complicated, and the joke is a good one. It's a good one. And actually, I learned quite a bit uh, just from researching this joke, and I always like it when that happens. So to begin today, I have to first remind you where we left off last week. This was with the oft-quoted bit from the king, the Brobdingnagian king, saying, I cannot but conclude the bulk of your natives to be the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. Okay? So obviously people are going to take that and run with it, which they did for the last 400 years, and people have had a ball with this. Fine. If we remember that it's Gulliver telling us the story, we must prepare ourselves for Gulliver to be horrified by this statement from the king. And that is, in fact, what he starts with is almost this apology at the beginning of the next chapter of, you know, having, if it wasn't that his duty to truth was so overwhelming, he never would have scalded our ears with such horror. So, he he goes on to do that, but then he ends it by mentioning a particular historian. This is a Greek historian who lived in Rome and learned Latin and wrote in Latin and wrote in Greek for the Greeks. He was living at the time of Julius Caesar, and what he tried to do after having lived in Rome for a while was he wrote a 20-volume history of Rome where he tried to convince the Greeks that it really wasn't that big a deal to be ruled by Rome because Rome, in fact, had been founded by ancient Greeks. Now, you may remember from Virgil's Aeneid, that that's the whole purpose of the Aeneid, is to say, we go back to the Trojan War. We go all, we Romans, we go way back. We are so ancient that the ancients don't remember how ancient we are. We are an old and illustrious group of people who have wound up on this boot-shaped promontory, and we are the proud bearers of civilization. Therefore, you shouldn't feel bad about the fact that we just conquered you and kicked your butt. So, interestingly, Dionysius, not the god, but the historian, the Greek guy who comes to Italy and eventually writes this 20-volume history, he and Virgil are writing it about the same time, which makes me think this was kind of a thing. 
Dionysus didn't head over to Rome until after the Punic Wars, after the Greek Civil Wars had happened and Rome had come in and taken over and everything was kind of settling in. And clearly he felt a need to fulfill <laughs> to fulfill his destiny as the guy who is basically writing an apology for the Romans and, and saying, golly, don't you want us to rule you? <laughs> it's that scene in in the life of Brian. What do the Romans ever do for us? Roads? Roads? They gave us roads. Oh, yeah, the roads. But aside from roads, what else did they do for us? Plumbing? They did plumbing. Oh, that's, you know, and it goes on and on and on. So, <laughs> it's kind of the service that Dionysius was pre presenting to the Greeks. Now, you need to know all of that to get the joke that Swift plants inside this opening paragraph. So listen to the opening paragraph, listen to the apology, and listen for the way he refers to Dionysus. Nothing but an extreme love of truth could have hindered me from concealing this part of my story. It was in vain to discover my resentments, which were always turned into ridicule, and I was forced to rest with patience while my noble and most beloved country was so injuriously treated. I am heartily sorry, as many of my readers can possibly be, that such an occasion was given. But this prince happened to be so curious and inquisitive upon every particular that it could not consist either with gratitude or good manners to refuse giving him what satisfaction I was able. Yet thus much I may allow to say, in my own vindication, that I artfully eluded many of his questions." and gave to every point a more favorable turn by many degrees than the strictness of truth would allow. For I have always borne that laudable partiality to my own country, which Dionysus Halicarnassensis with so much justice recommends to an historian. And so, of course, the joke is, Dionysus did not show any partiality to his country. <laughs> he instead, by acting like he was showing partiality to his country, in fact went on to attempt to prove that his country really needed to be ruled by a different country, by Rome. The other thing that I found interesting in, in researching the background to this joke is it seems like when Swift was around, that joke probably wasn't very obscure. People were still reading and writing in Latin and Greek in school, and his 20-volume encyclopedic history of Rome, actually half of it, a little, well, a little more than half of it if you count partials, at least half of it has survived. And more parts of it have survived in excerpts in other people's works. So it, it's really not an insubstantial chunk of writing, and it's not an obscure chunk of writing in a world where Latin and Greek are studied and read. Now, he'll go straight on from there into more scathing commentaries about Europe, which he makes by making comparisons, again, to the Brobdignagian world. And when he's criticizing Brobdignag, who he's really criticizing is Europe and the, and the UK. And he's, he's pretty obvious about this. But again, as long as he doesn't tread on the foot of the king... He's probably safe. And in fact, he was very safe because the book was incredibly popular when it came out. And uh, even when it was anonymous, it was popular. But once they knew it was Swift, it was very popular. Now, at the last, at the end of the last chapter, 
last week, we heard one of the more often quoted lines from Gulliver's Travels about vermin on the earth. In this chapter, we have another often quoted line about politics, politicians, and who's really important. And this very much goes along with kind of the pre-enlightenment thinking that we see in Swift. There's a little bit of Rousseau in here, a little bit of the noble savage, that kind of back to nature attitude. And, and, and Swift is definitely pushing his view of things. And remember, one of the reasons why Swift's satire hasn't lived in the forefront of satire in the same way that say Twain may have or or even Ambrose Bierce may have uh, is is that Swift was actually looking backwards and saying no 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 they had it right back then we're going the wrong direction whereas most satirists are looking forward and going no we have it wrong right now look at what we need to be doing which is where you get more modern day it's, it's where you also see the modern day, um, like Stephen Colbert and, and, and people who are out there now, the um, National Lampoon, stuff like that, or the, the Onion, you know, where they're making fun of this stuff today with the hope that we'll continue to move forward and out of where we are for tomorrow. Now, he does at one point mention the Chinese and the art of printing, and I did not know these numbers and dates, so I thought you might find this kind of interesting as well. Reading to you from the holy text of Isaac of Asimov. <laughs> this is one of his annotations. The Chinese had developed the concept of printing as early as 200. <laughs> That's 200 of the common era, 280, more than 12 centuries before printing was invented in Europe. By 1050, they had invented movable type, and in 1313, a font existed in which 60,000 Chinese characters had been carved into wooden blocks. In Korea, even more elaborate fonts of bronze were prepared. What allowed Europe to catch up and far surpass China and Korea, when it was the latter who had the paper, the ink, and the fonts, and all the ideas long before, was that European languages were alphabetical and built up out of two dozen different characters, whereas the Asian languages needed tens of thousands of elaborate figures. With printing, Europe moved ahead in learning and in particular in science and technology, eventually controlling the world for a time, all because of a small matter like the alphabet, which had been invented about 1400 BC by some nameless Phoenician. It all comes down to 26 characters. <laughs> it's just so mind-blowing. I thought you'd like that because it's, um, I, I knew that China had gotten there first on so many inventions and I never really understood why that didn't explode everywhere. I mean, I know that trade routes and, and all that kind of thing, but you know, eventually if you got it that early, something I, I expected a different kind of momentum, I guess, but this actually makes it make sense. Now, if Isaac Asimov is wrong here, please put your comments in the comment section on the show notes because we need to know that. And that actually leads directly into what we're about to be dealing with, with book three of Gulliver's Travels. And I'll just put a PSA in here and then I'll reiterate it again in future chapters. I am convinced that one of the reasons why Isaac Asimov annotated Gulliver's Travels is because of book three. 
It's the least popular of the three books and the most scientific. And my understanding is that Swift's attacks on Newtonian science are legion. And Asimov had a few issues with that. And so I think as we get closer and closer into that and more and more into scientific things, Asimov's commentary is going to have more and more to do with that. I, as I always do, will be picking and choosing which annotations I think you might be interested in or which little factoids I think would help. But I am quite certain that this having been written, the annotations having been written in the early 80s, there is going to be stuff that quantum physics has uncovered and revealed that Asimov didn't know about at the time. And so if Asimov gets the science wrong and I read the wrong stuff, because we've learned so much in the last 30 years, please do not hesitate to email me so I can read your email on the next episode. You can get me heather at craftingalife.com and from there, I'll get your email or you can put a comment in the show notes and I will get the comment from there and read it on the air as well. There's also a mention in this section of huge bones and skulls. And, you know, there's the uh, Genesis 6, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. That's pretty well known. And in fact, as a child, I think I just assumed that what that meant was dinosaurs because they were giants. I don't know. Is that conventional wisdom with biblical stuff? I have no idea. But uh, one of the things that popped into my mind when Gulliver talks about the fossils basically, was I, I started to wonder, well, when did people start to identify dinosaur fossils as dinosaurs rather than as giant people? Like, there are certain skulls of animals that if you saw them, like big, if you saw uh, an elephant skull without its tusks, it could look kind of almost human and, you know, giant. But uh, it turns out that while most people, up until the point of Swift, had thought that the fossils that had been around had either been do-overs by God or uh, things created by the devil in an attempt to try to be God and it, that he had failed in doing that. And so, these were the remnants of what he had been up to. Um, there actually were a couple of geologists who had figured out that these were giant animals and you know different species and stuff. One was a Danish geologist, Niels Steno, He lived from 1648 to 1686, and evidently he was the first to not look to theology for an explanation for this. He said that fossils were the petrified remains of animals who had once lived in and who had died in a normal manner. And then a friend of Swift's, uh, Robert Hooke, H-O-O-K-E, living from 1635 to 1703, he agreed with Steno's point of view, and he and and Swift were, were friends. So I thought that was kind of interesting that it goes back, it goes back that far, but really only that far that you start to get people looking at, at fossilized remains and going, oh, well, no, these are, these are very, very old and, and fossils. There will be a reference to Venice and voting by ballot in Venice. And you will think to yourself, self, what? And I'm here to tell you, yes. Yes, while it was not by any means a democracy or representative democracy like we think of today, because it was just like in ancient Greeks, it was really the guys who had the land who were voting, so it's just a few families with money. When Swift wrote this book, Venice had already been 
a, a voting republic for a thousand years and had had no civil strife to speak of. Whereas everywhere around them over those thousand years, it's like, wow, blowing up here, there, and everywhere. And Venice, Venice, Venice wasn't doing that. And I was blown away. I had no idea. I think that is so cool. I am very excited about that. Oh, and the, the other thing to keep in mind during chapter seven is Brobdingnag, you have to remember, is inaccessible. They've never really dealt with or seen people from the outside. Now, there are different cities and towns within Brobdingnag. So there is an opportunity for them to, there to have been conflict between those cities. But for the most part, when people get into wars, it is usually a country against a country or a region against a region. It is not usually a city against a city. And you're going to have machinations for the king and, you know, who's going to succeed the king if there isn't an heir and sure, that kind of thing you can expect. But the king of Brobdignag has never had to deal with, nor have his ancestors had to deal with, the rise of a foreign invader trying to come in and take over the joint. And because of that, his attitudes are implied to be not quite so realistic. So some of the things that he says, you kind of, it should make you raise your eyebrow and go, well, yeah, easy for you to say. Which is, I think, something that Swift is, is hinting at. And I think it's an important thing to remember is, you know, it's, it's very easy to point fingers and say, well, if I ran the zoo, I would do things completely differently. And that, it might be true. If I ran the zoo, I might do a marvelous job. I also might not have a clue what I was getting myself into until I was already neck deep in it and unable to pull out, which is always my fear, of course, that there's something secret that nobody's telling me. And it's turned out to be kind of true. I know for a long time I thought it, adults were idiots and you know, really, they just needed me to tell them how to run things. And then, of course, when I became responsible for a classroom, it took a couple of years for me to figure out that, wow, I, uh, I'm not a parent. I don't actually, mm, I don't really know <laughs> what's best for the child at this point. Perhaps I should talk to someone older and wiser. But doesn't that go along with Mark Twain's thing? That when I was 18, I couldn't believe what an idiot my dad was. And by the time I was 22, I was shocked at how much he'd learned in four years that kind of thing? Ah, yes. Wisdom. All right, I will now play you all of chapter seven of book two of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, read for you by Aaron Siegler. Chapter seven. The author's love of his country. He makes a proposal of much advantage to the king, which is rejected. The king's great ignorance in politics, the learning of that country very imperfect and confined, their laws and military affairs and parties in the state. Nothing but an extreme love of truth could have hindered me from concealing this part of my story. It was in vain to discover my resentments, which were always turned into ridicule, and I was forced to rest with patience while my noble and most beloved country was so injuriously treated. I am heartily sorry, as many of my readers can possibly be, that such an occasion was given. But this prince happened to be so curious and inquisitive upon every particular that it could not consist either with gratitude or good manners to refuse giving him what satisfaction I was able. Yet thus much I may allow to say, in my own vindication, 
that I artfully eluded many of his questions, and gave to every point a more favorable turn by many degrees than the strictness of truth would allow. For I have always borne that laudable partiality to my own country, which Dionysus Halicarnassensis with so much justice recommends to an historian. I would hide the frailties and deformities of my political mother, and place her virtues and beauties in the most advantageous light. This was my sincere endeavor in those many discourses I had with that monarch, although it unfortunately failed of success. But great allowances should be given to a king who lives wholly secluded from the rest of the world, and must, therefore, be altogether unacquainted with the manners and customs that most prevail in other nations, the want of which knowledge will ever produce many prejudices and a certain narrowness of thinking, from which we and the politer countries of Europe are wholly exempted." and it would be hard indeed if so remote a prince's notions of virtue and vice were to be offered as a standard for all mankind. To confirm what I have now said, and further show the miserable effects of a confined education, I shall here insert a passage which will hardly obtain belief. In hopes to ingratiate myself further into His Majesty's favour, I told him of an invention discovered between three and four hundred years ago, to make a certain powder, into an heap of which the smallest spark of fire falling would kindle the hole in a moment, although it were as big as a mountain, and make it all fly up in the air together with a noise and agitation greater than thunder, that a proper quantity of this powder rammed into an hollow tube of brass or iron, according to its bigness, would drive a ball of iron or lead with such violence and speed as nothing was able to sustain its force, that the largest balls thus discharged would not only destroy whole ranks of an army at once, but batter the strongest walls to the ground, sink down ships with a thousand men in each to the bottom of the sea, and when linked together by a chain, would cut through masts and rigging, divide hundreds of bodies in the middle, and lay all waste before them, that we often put this powder into large hollow bowls of iron, and discharged them by an engine into some city we were besieging, which would rip up the pavement, tear the houses to pieces, burst and throw splinters on every side, dashing out the brains of all who came near, that I knew the ingredients very well, which were cheap and common, I understood the manner of compounding them, and could direct his workmen how to make those tubes of a size proportionable to all other things in his majesty's kingdom, and the largest need not be above two hundred foot long, twenty or thirty of which tubes, charged with the proper quantity of powder and balls, would batter down the walls of the strongest town in his dominions in a few hours, or destroy the whole metropolis if ever it should pretend to dispute his absolute commands." This I humbly offered to His Majesty as a small tribute of acknowledgment in return of so many marks that I had received of his royal favor and protection. The king was struck with horror at the description I had given of those terrible engines and the proposal I had made. He was amazed how so impotent and groveling an insect as I, these were his expressions, 
could entertain such inhuman ideas and in so familiar a manner as to appear wholly unmoved at all the scenes of blood and desolation which I had painted as the common effects of those destructive machines, whereof, he said, some evil genius enemy to mankind must have been the first contriver. As for himself, he protested that although few things delighted him so much as new discoveries in art or in nature— Yet he would rather lose half his kingdom than be privy to such a secret, which he commanded me, as I valued my life, never to mention any more. A strange effect of narrow principles and short views. That a prince, possessed of every quality which produces veneration, love and esteem, of strong parts, great wisdom, and profound learning, endued with admirable talents for government, and almost adored by his subjects, should from a nice, unnecessary scruple, whereof in Europe we have no conception, let slip an opportunity put into his hands that would have made him absolute master of the lives, the liberties, and the fortunes of his people." Neither do I say this with the least intention to detract from the many virtues of that excellent king, whose character, I am sensible, will on this account be very much lessened in the opinion of an English reader. But I take this defect among them to have risen from their ignorance by not having hitherto reduced politics into a science, as the more acute wits of Europe have done. For I remember very well in a discourse one day with the king, when I happened to say there were several thousand books among us written upon the art of government, it gave him, directly contrary to my intention, a very mean opinion of our understandings. He professed both to abominate and despise all mystery, refinement, and intrigue, either in a prince or a minister. He could not tell what I meant by secrets of state, where an enemy or some rival nation were not in the case. He confined the knowledge of governing within very narrow bounds, to common sense and reason, to justice and lenity, to the speedy determination of civil and criminal causes, with some other obvious topics which are not worth considering. And he gave it for his opinion that whoever could make two ears of corn or two blades of grass to grow upon a spot of ground where only one grew before, would deserve better of mankind and do more essential service to his country than the whole race of politicians put together. The learning of this people is very defective, consisting only in morality, history, poetry, and mathematics, wherein they must be allowed to excel. But the last of these is wholly applied to what may be useful in life, to the improvement of agriculture and all mechanical arts, so that among us it would be little esteemed. And as to ideas, entities, abstractions, and transcendentals, I could never drive the least conception into their heads. No law of that country must exceed in words the number of letters in their alphabet, which consists only of two and twenty but indeed few of them extend even to that length. They are expressed in the most plain and simple terms, wherein those people are not mercurial enough to discover above one interpretation, and to write a comment upon any law is a capital crime. As to the decision of civil causes or proceedings against criminals, their precedents are so few that they have little reason to boast of any extraordinary skill in either. They have had the art of printing, as well as the Chinese, time out of mind. But their libraries are not very large, 
for that of the kings, which is reckoned the largest, doth not amount to above a thousand volumes, placed in a gallery of twelve hundred foot long, from whence I had liberty to borrow what books I pleased. The queen's joiner had contrived in one of Glumdalclitch's rooms a kind of wooden machine five and twenty foot high, formed like a standing ladder. The steps were each fifty foot long. It was indeed a movable pair of stairs, the lowest end placed at ten foot distance from the wall of the chamber. The book I had a mind to read was put up leaning against the wall. I first mounted to the upper step of the ladder, and turning my face towards the book, began at the top of the page, and so walking to the right and left about eight or ten paces according to the length of the lines, till I had gotten a little below the level of mine eyes, and then descending gradually till I came to the bottom, after which I mounted again and began the other page in the same manner, and so turned over the leaf, which I could easily do with both my hands, for it was as thick and stiff as a pasteboard, and in the largest folios not above eighteen or twenty foot long. Their style is clear, masculine, and smooth, but not florid, for they avoid nothing more than multiplying unnecessary words or using various expressions. I have perused many of their books, especially those in history and morality. Among the latter, I was much diverted with a little old treatise which always lay in Glumdalclitch's bedchamber and belonged to her governess, a grave elderly gentlewoman who dealt in writings of morality and devotion. The book treats of the weakness of humankind and is in little esteem except among women and the vulgar. However, I was curious to see what an author of that country could say upon such a subject. This writer went through all the usual topics of European moralists, showing how diminutive, contemptible, and helpless an animal was man in his own nature, how unable to defend himself from inclemencies in the air, or the fury of wild beasts, how much he was excelled by one creature in strength, by another in speed, by a third in foresight, by a fourth in industry. He added that nature was degenerated in these latter declining ages of the world, and could now produce only small abortive births in comparison of those in ancient times. He said it was very reasonable to think not only that the species of man were originally much larger, but also that there must have been giants in former ages, which, as it is asserted by history and tradition, so it hath been confirmed by huge bones and skulls casually dug up in several parts of the kingdom far exceeding the common dwindled race of man in our days. He argued that the very laws of nature absolutely required we should have been made in the beginning of a size more large and robust, not so liable to destruction from every little accident of a tile falling from an house, or a stone cast from the hand of a boy, or of being drowned in a little brook. From this way of reasoning, the author drew several more applications useful in the conduct of life, but needless here to repeat. For my own part, I could not avoid reflecting how universally this talent was spread of drawing lectures in morality, or indeed, rather, matter of discontent and repining from the quarrels we raise with nature. And I believe, upon a strict inquiry, those quarrels might be shown as ill-grounded among us as they are among that people. As to their military affairs, they boast that the king's army consists of an hundred and seventy-six thousand foot and thirty-two thousand horse, if that may be called an army which is made up of tradesmen in the several cities and farmers in the country, whose commanders are only the nobility and gentry without pay or reward. 
they are indeed perfect enough in their exercises and under very good discipline, wherein I saw no great merit. For how should it be otherwise, where every farmer is under the command of his own landlord, and every citizen under that of the principal men in his own city, chosen after the manner of Venice, by ballot? I have often seen the militia of Lord Brogrude drawn out to exercise in a great field near the city, twenty miles square, they were in all not above twenty-five thousand foot and six thousand horse, but it was impossible for me to compute their numbers considering the space of ground they took up. A cavalier mounted on a large steed might be about ninety foot high. I have seen this whole body of horse, upon the word of command, draw their swords at once and brandish them in the air. Imagination can figure nothing so grand, so surprising, and so astonishing. It looked as if ten thousand flashes of lightning were darting at the same time from every quarter of the sky. I was curious to know how this prince, to whose dominions there is no access from any other country, came to think of armies, or to teach his people the practice of military discipline. But I was soon informed, both by conversation and reading their histories, for in the course of many ages they have been troubled with the same disease to which the whole race of mankind is subject— the nobility often contending for power, the people for liberty, and the king for absolute dominion, all which, however happily tempered by the laws of that kingdom, have been sometimes violated by each of the three parties, and have more than once occasioned civil wars, the last whereof was happily put an end to by this prince's grandfather in a general composition, and the militia then settled with common consent, hath been ever since kept in the strictest duty." So that section where the king is horrified by gunpowder and guns, I thought was very interesting. And it is, it is true that he wouldn't really have had a need for it if he hadn't ever had to defend his country against an outside invader. However, it is definitely one of those things that people point to in this book to draw out some of the more brilliantly written satire and hold a mirror, as it were, up to our world and say, maybe we should think about this a little differently. Which is kind of, you know, Swift's whole purpose in this book all the way along. So, chapter 8, which we are about to start. You may remember, as we head into chapter 8, way back with Little Women, the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Well, in this case, you're going to hear the word progress used for the king and queen. And this is when, if you had a, a benevolent monarch and somebody who was basically popular, one of the ways they kept or gained in popularity was by going and taking a turn about the town and being seen by your subjects, being accessible-ish, but, uh, but being, being out and among the people. So you would go from time to time, you'd go on a progress and that would be like walking around touring the town. Now you're going to hear more evidence in this of what I'd been calling Stockholm Syndrome, the identification with your captors kind of thing. And uh, it's going to take different permutations during the course of, of this chapter. But do listen for it, because the first time I listened to it, a bunch of stuff went by and it just left me confused. And it was me not realizing that Gulliver was having a very difficult time readjusting to being his size within a world that was his size. So you're, you're going to hear 
a, a lot of confusion coming out of him, and, and he's reporting it from his point of view. He doesn't see it as confusion. He's just letting you know what, what happened. And there are a few places where terms are used in archaic fashions that I wanted to let you in on. One is, you're going to hear a phrase, winked at my own littleness. And instead of winking, the way we think of like winking at, what he means is they, they close their eyes deliberately so as not to see something. He closed his eyes deliberately so as not to see something that was disturbing to him. Uh, the word conceit now we use as vanity, but conceit used to be like conception, like an idea. And then it, it became used as kind of a, a, a witty turn. You know, some, you're saying something very clever. And uh, Gulliver, when this conceit things happens, he's not appreciating it. And it's a comparison with Phaeton. And Phaeton, P-H-A-E-T-O-N, in the Greek myths, he was the son of Helios, the sun god. When Phaeton's descent was doubted, he persuaded his father to let him drive the chariot of the sun for one day. So when people started to think, oh, he's not really son of the sun god. And predictably, because it is a Greek myth, the horses go wild, the sun goes out of its orbit, the earth is in danger of being destroyed, deserts are created by singeing the earth, and to prevent all of this, Zeus struck Phaeton with a lightning bolt, and his dead body was hurled out of the solar chariot and fell to earth like Gulliver in his box. Gulliver does not see this conceit in a positive light. And there's one other thing I want to share with you, but I'm going to do it at the end, because it's not going to affect your understanding of anything. It's just kind of a nice layer to know as you walk away from these chapters. And then we will be done with part two. And next week, we can start part three. I am so excited. So without any further ado, here is Aaron reading chapter eight of part two of Gulliver's Travels. Chapter eight. The king and queen make a progress to the frontiers. The author attends them. The manner in which he leaves the country very particularly related, he returns to England. I had always a strong impulse that I should sometime recover my liberty, although it were impossible to conjecture by what means or to form any project with the least hope of succeeding. The ship in which I sailed was the first ever to be driven within sight of that coast, and the king had given strict orders that if at any time another appeared, it should be taken ashore and with all its crew and passengers brought in a tumdrel to Lorborogrood. He was strongly bent to get me a woman of my own size, by whom I might propagate the breed. But I think I should rather have died than undergone the disgrace of leaving a posterity to be kept in cages like tame canary birds, and perhaps in time sold about the kingdom to persons of quality for curiosities. I was indeed treated with much kindness. I was the favorite of a great king and queen, and the delight of the whole country, but it was upon such a foot as ill became the dignity of humankind. I could never forget those domestic pledges I had left behind me. I wanted to be among people with whom I could converse upon even terms, and walk about the streets and fields without fear of being trod to death like a frog or young puppy. But my deliverance came sooner than I expected, and in a manner not very common, the whole story and circumstances of which I shall faithfully relate. I had now been two years in this country, and about the beginning of the third, Glundalclitch and I attended the king and queen in progress to the south coast of the kingdom. I was carried, as usual, in my travelling box, which, as I have already described, was a very convenient closet of twelve foot wide. 
I had ordered a hammock to be fixed by silken ropes from the four corners at the top to break the jolts when a servant carried me before him on horseback, as I sometimes desired, and would often sleep in my hammock while we were upon the road. On the roof of my closet, set not directly over the middle of the hammock, I ordered the joiner to cut a hole of a foot square to give me air in hot weather as I slept, which hole I shut at pleasure with a board that drew backwards and forwards through a groove. When we came to our journey's end, the king thought proper to pass a few days at a palace that he hath near Flanflasnik, a city within eighteen English miles of the seaside. Glumdalclitch and I were much fatigued. I had gotten a small cold, but the poor girl was so ill as to be confined to her chamber. I longed to see the ocean, which must be the only scene of my escape, if ever it should happen. I pretended to be worse than I really was, and desired leave to take the fresh air of the sea with a page whom I was very fond of, and who had sometimes been trusted with me. I shall never forget with what unwillingness Glumdalclitch consented, nor the strict charge she gave the page to be careful of me, bursting at the same time into a flood of tears, as if she had some foreboding of what was to happen. The boy took me out in my box about half an hour's walk from the palace, towards the rocks on the seashore. I ordered him to set me down, and lifting up one of my sashes, cast many a wistful melancholy look towards the sea. I found myself not very well, and told the page that I had a mind to take a nap in my hammock, which I hoped would do me good. I got in, and the boy shut the window closed down to keep out the cold. I soon fell asleep, and all I can conjecture is that while I slept, the page, thinking no danger could happen, went among the rocks to look for birds' eggs, having before observed him from my window searching about and picking up one or two in the clefts. But that as it will, I found myself suddenly awaked with a violent pull upon the ring which fastened at the top of my box for the convenience of carriage. I felt the box raised very high in the air, and then borne forward with prodigious speed. The first jolt had liked to have shaken me out of my hammock, but afterwards the motion was easy enough. I called out several times as loud as I could raise my voice, but all to no purpose. I looked towards my windows, and could see nothing but the clouds and sky. I heard a noise just over my head like the clapping of wings, and then began to perceive the woeful condition I was in, that some eagle had got the ring of my box in his beak, with an intent to let it fall on a rock like a tortoise in a shell, and then pick out my body and devour it. For the sagacity and smell of this bird enable him to discover his quarry at a great distance, although better concealed than I could be within a two-inch board. In a little time I observed the noise and flutter of wings to increase very fast, and my box was tossed up and down like a signpost in a windy day. I heard several bangs or buffets, as I thought, given to the eagle, for such I am certain it must have been that held the ring of my box in his beak, and then, all on a sudden, felt myself falling perpetually down for above a minute, but with such incredible swiftness that I almost lost my breath. My fall was stopped by a terrible squash that sounded louder to mine ears than the cataract of Niagara, after which I was quite in the dark for another minute, and then my box began to rise so high that I could see light from the tops of my windows. I now perceived that I was fallen into the sea. My box, by the weight of my body, the goods that were in, and the broad plates of iron fixed for strength at the four corners of the top and bottom, floated about five foot deep in water. I did then and do now suppose that the eagle which flew away with my box 
was pursued by two or three others and forced to let me drop while he was defending himself against the rest who hoped to share in the prey. The plates of iron fastened at the bottom of the box, for those were the strongest, preserved the balance while it fell and hindered it from being broken on the surface of the water. Every joint of it was well grooved and the door did not move on hinges, but up and down like a sash, which kept my closet so tight that very little water came in. I got with much difficulty out of my hammock, having first ventured to draw back the slipboard on the roof already mentioned, contrived on purpose to let in air, for want of which I found myself almost stifled. How often did I then wish myself with my dear Glumdalclitch, from whom one single hour had so far divided me, and I may say with truth that in the midst of my own misfortune I could not forbear lamenting my poor nurse, the grief she would suffer for my loss, the displeasure of the queen and the ruin of her fortune. Perhaps many travellers have not been under greater difficulties and distress than I was at this juncture, expecting every moment to see my box dashed in pieces, or at least overset by the first violent blast or a rising wave. A breach in one single pane of glass would have been immediate death, nor could anything have preserved the windows but the strong lattice wires placed on the outside against accidents in travelling. I saw the water ooze in at several crannies, although the leaks were not considerable, and I endeavoured to stop them as well as I could. I was not able to lift up the roof of my closet, which otherwise I certainly should have done and sat on the top of it, where I might at least preserve myself from being shut up, as I may call it, in the hold. Or, if I escaped these dangers for a day or two, what could I expect but a miserable death of cold and hunger? I was four hours under these circumstances, expecting and indeed wishing every moment to be my last. I have already told the reader that there were two strong staples fixed upon the side of my box which had no window, and into which the servant who used to carry me on horseback would put a leather belt and buckle it about his waist. Being in this disconsolate state, I heard, or at least thought I heard, some kind of grating noise on that side of my box where the staples were fixed, and soon after I began to fancy that the box was pulled or towed along in the sea, for now and then I felt a sort of tugging which made the waves rise near the tops of my windows, leaving me almost in the dark. This gave me some faint hopes of relief, although I were not able to imagine how it could be brought about. I ventured to unscrew one of my chairs, which were always fastened to the floor, and having made a hard shift to screw it down again directly under the slipping board that I had lately opened, I mounted on the chair, and putting my mouth as near as I could to the hole, I called for help in a loud voice and in all the languages I understood. I then fastened my handkerchief to a stick I usually carried and thrust it up the hole waved it several times in the air, that if any boat or ship were near, the seamen might conjecture some unhappy mortal to be shut up in the box. I found no effect from all I could do, but plainly perceived my closet to be moved along, and in the space of an hour or better, that side of the box where the staples were and had no window struck against something that was hard. I apprehended it to be a rock, and found myself tossed more than ever, I plainly heard a noise upon the cover of my closet, like that of a cable, and the grating of it as it passed through the ring. I then found myself hoisted up by degrees at least three foot higher than I was before, whereupon I again thrust up my stick and handkerchief, calling for help till I was almost hoarse, in return to which I heard a great shout repeated three times, 
giving me such transports of joy as are not to be conceived but by those who feel them. I now heard a trampling over my head, and somebody calling through the hole with a loud voice in the English tongue, If there be anybody below, let them speak. I answered I was an Englishman, drawn by ill fortune into the greatest calamity that ever any creature underwent, and begged by all that was moving to be delivered out of the dungeon I was in. The voice replied I was safe, for my box was fastened to their ship, and the carpenter should immediately come and saw an hole in the cover large enough to pull me out. I answered that was needless and would take up too much time, for there was no more to be done but let one of the crew put his finger into the ring and take the box out of the sea into the ship and so into the captain's cabin. Some of them, upon hearing me talk so wildly, thought I was mad. Others laughed, for indeed it never came into my head that I was now got among people of my own stature and strength. The carpenter came, and in a few minutes sawed a passage about four foot square, then let down a small ladder, upon which I mounted, and from thence was taken into the ship in a very weak condition. The sailors were all in amazement, and asked me a thousand questions, which I had no inclination to answer. I was equally confounded at the sight of so many pygmies, for such I took them to be, after having so long accustomed mine eyes to the monstrous objects I had left. But the captain, Mr. Thomas Wilcox, an honest Shropshire man, observing I was ready to faint, took me into his cabin, gave me a cordial to comfort me, and made me turn in upon his own bed, advising me to take a little rest, of which I had great need. Before I went to sleep, I gave him to understand that I had some valuable furniture in my box too good to be lost, a fine hammock, a handsome field bed, two chairs, a table, and a cabinet, that my closet was hung on all sides, or rather quilted with silk and cotton, that if he would let one of the crew bring my closet into his cabin, I would open it before him and show him my goods. The captain, hearing me utter these absurdities, concluded I was raving. However, I suppose to pacify me, he promised to give order as I desired, and going upon deck, sent some of his men down into my closet, from whence, as I afterwards found, they drew up all my goods and stripped off the quilting, but the chairs, cabinet, and bedstead being screwed to the floor were much damaged by the ignorance of the seamen who tore them up by force. Then they knocked off some of the boards for the use of the ship, and when they had got all they had a mind for, let the hulk drop into the sea, which by reason of many breaches made in the bottom and sides sunk to rights. And indeed, I was glad not to have been a spectator of the havoc they made, because I am confident it would have sensibly touched me by bringing former passages into my mind, which I had rather forget. I slept some hours, but perpetually disturbed with dreams of the place I had left, and the dangers I had escaped. However, upon waking, I found myself much recovered. It was now about eight o'clock at night, and the captain ordered supper immediately, thinking I had already fasted too long. He entertained me with great kindness, observing me not to look wildly or talk inconsistently, and when we were left alone, desired I would give him a relation of my travels, and by what accident I came to be set adrift in that monstrous wooden chest. He said that about twelve o'clock at noon, as he was looking through his glass, he spied it at a distance, and thought it was a sail, which he had a mind to make, being not much out of his course, in hopes of buying some biscuit, his own beginning to fall short, that upon coming nearer, and finding his error, he sent out his longboat to discover what I was, 
that his men came back in a fright, swearing they had seen a swimming house, that he laughed at their folly and went himself in the boat, ordering his men to take a strong cable along with them, that the weather being calm, he rode around me several times, observed my windows and the wire lattices that defended them, then he discovered two staples upon one side which was all of boards without any passage for light. He then commanded his men to row up to that side, and fastening a cable to one of the staples, ordered his men to tow my chest, as he called it, towards the ship. When it was there, he gave directions to fasten another cable to the ring fixed in the cover, and to raise up my chest with pulleys, which all the sailors were not able to do above two or three foot. He said they saw my stick and handkerchief thrust out the hole, and concluded that some unhappy man must be shut up in the cavity. I asked whether he or the crew had seen any prodigious birds in the air about the time he first discovered me, to which he answered that discoursing this matter with the sailors while I was asleep, one of them said he had observed three eagles flying towards the north, but remarked nothing of their being larger than the usual size, which, I suppose, must be imputed to the great height they were at, and he could not guess the reason of my question. I then asked the captain how far he reckoned we might be from land, he said by the best computation he could make, we were at least an hundred leagues. I assured him that he must be mistaken by almost half, for I had not left the country from whence I came above two hours before I dropped into the sea, whereupon he began again to think that my brain was disturbed, of which he gave me a hint, and advised me to go to bed in a cabin he had provided. I assured him I was well refreshed from his good entertainment and company, and as much in my sense as ever I was in my life. He then grew serious, and desired to ask me freely whether I were not troubled in mind by the consciousness of some enormous crime for which I was punished at the command of some prince by exposing me in that chest, as great criminals in other countries have been forced to see in a leaky vessel without provisions." For, although he should be sorry to have taken so ill a man into his ship, yet he would engage his word to set me safe on shore in the first port where we arrived. He added that his suspicions were much increased by some very absurd speeches I had delivered at first to the sailors, and afterwards to himself, in relation to my closet or chest, as well as by my odd looks and behavior while I was at supper. I begged his patience to hear me tell my story, which I faithfully did, from the last time I left England to the moment he first discovered me. And as truth always forceth its way into rational minds, so this honest, worthy gentleman, who had some tincture of learning and very good sense, was immediately convinced of my candor and veracity. But further, to confirm all I had said, I entreated him to give order that my cabinet should be brought, of which I kept the key in my pocket, for he had already informed me how the seaman disposed of my closet. I opened it in his presence, and showed him the small collection of rarities I made in the country from whence I had been so strangely delivered. There was the comb I had contrived out of the stumps of the king's beard, and another of the same materials, but fixed into a pairing of Her Majesty's thumbnail, which served for the back. There was a collection of needles and pins from a foot to half a yard long, four wasp stings, like joiner's tacks, some combings of the queen's hair, a gold ring which one day she made me a present of, in a most obliging manner, taking it from her little finger and throwing it over my head like a collar. I desired the captain would please to accept this ring in return for his civilities, which he absolutely refused, 
I showed him a corn that I had cut off with my own hand from a maid of honor's toe. It was about the bigness of a Kentish pippin, and grown so hard that when I returned to England, I got it hollowed into a cup and set it with silver. Lastly, I desired him to see the breeches I had then on, which were made of a mouse's skin. I could force nothing on him but a footman's tooth, which I observed him to examine with great curiosity, and found he had a fancy for it. He received it with abundance of thanks more than such a trifle could deserve. It was drawn by an unskillful surgeon in a mistake from one of Glumdalclitch's men, who was afflicted with the toothache, but it was as sound as any in his head. I got it cleaned and put it into my cabinet. It was about a foot long and four inches in diameter. The captain was very well satisfied with this plain relation I had given him, and said he hoped when we returned to England I would oblige the world by putting it in paper and making it public. My answer was that I thought we were already overstocked with books of travels, that nothing could now pass which was not extraordinary, wherein I doubted some authors less consulted truth than their own vanity or interest or the diversion of ignorant readers, that my story could contain little besides common events without those ornamental descriptions of strange plants, trees, birds, and other animals, or the barbarous customs and idolatry of savage people with which most writers abound. However, I thanked him for his good opinion and promised to take the matter into my thoughts." He said he wondered at one thing very much, which was to hear me speak so loud, asking me whether the king or queen of that country were thick of hearing. I told him it was what I had been used to for above two years past, and that I admired as much at the voices of him and his men, who seemed to me only to whisper, and yet I could hear them well enough. But when I spoke in that country, it was like a man talking in the street to another looking out from the top of a steeple unless when I was placed on a table or held in any person's hand. I told him I had likewise observed another thing, that when I first got into the ship and the sailors stood all about me, I thought they were the most little contemptible creatures I had ever beheld. For indeed, while I was in that prince's country, I could never endure to look in a glass after mine eyes had been accustomed to such prodigious objects, because the comparison gave me so despicable a conceit of myself. The captain said that while we were at supper he observed me to look at everything with a sort of wonder, and that I often seemed hardly able to contain my laughter, which he knew not well how to take, but imputed it to some disorder in my brain. I answered it was very true, and I wondered how I could forbear, when I saw his dishes of the size of a silver threepence, a leg of pork, hardly a mouthful, a cup not so big as a nutshell, and so I went on, describing the rest of his household stuff and provisions after the same manner. For although the queen had ordered a little equipage of all things necessary for me while I was in her service, yet my ideas were wholly taken up with what I saw on every side of me, and I winked at my own littleness, as people do at their own faults. The captain understood my raillery very well, and merrily replied with the old English proverb that he doubted mine eyes were bigger than my belly for he did not observe my stomach so good, although I had fasted all day, and continuing in his mirth, protested he would have gladly given an hundred pounds to have seen my closet in the eagle's bill, and afterwards in its fall from so great an height into the sea, which would certainly have been a most astonishing object, worthy to have description of it transmitted to future ages, and the comparison of Phaeton was so obvious that he could not forbear applying it, 
although I did not much admire the conceit. The captain, having been at Tonquin, was in his return to England driven north-eastward to the latitude of 44 degrees and of longitude 143. But meeting a trade wind two days after I came on board him, we sailed southward a long time and coasting New Holland kept our course west-southwest and then south-southwest till we doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Our voyage was very prosperous, but I shall not trouble the reader with a journal of it. The captain called in at one or two ports, and sent his longboat for provisions and fresh water, but I never went out of the ship till we came into the Downs, which was on the third day of June, 1706, about nine months after my escape. I offered to leave my goods in security for payment of my freight, but the captain protested he would not receive one farthing. We took kind leave of each other, and I made him promise he would come to see me at my house in Redriff. I hired a horse and guide for five shilling, which I borrowed of the captain. As I was on the road, observing the littleness of the houses, the trees, the cattle, and the people, I began to think myself in Lilliput. I was afraid of trampling on every traveller I met, and often called aloud to have them stand out of the way, so that I had like to have gotten one or two broken heads for my impudence. When I came to my own house, for which I was forced to inquire, one of the servants opening the door... I bent down to go in, like a goose under a gate, for fear of striking my head. My wife ran out to embrace me, but I stooped lower than her knees, thinking she could otherwise never be able to reach my mouth. My daughter kneeled to ask me blessing, but I could not see her till she arose, having been so long used to stand with my head and eyes erect to above sixty foot, and then I went to take her up with one hand by the waist. I looked down upon the servants and one or two friends who were in the house as if they had been pygmies and I a giant. I told my wife she had been too thrifty, for I found she had starved herself and her daughter to nothing. In short, I behaved myself so unaccountably that they were all of the captain's opinion when he first saw me and concluded I had lost my wits. This I mention as an instance of the great power of habit and prejudice." In a little time, I and my family and friends came to a right understanding, but my wife protested I should never go to sea any more, although my evil destiny so ordered that she had not power to hinder me, as the reader may know hereafter. In the meantime, I here conclude the second part of my unfortunate voyages. The End of the Second Part Love, that once again Swift does that, you know, I'm... I'm not doing anything with my story besides relating common events. You know, it's not like I'm embellishing anything to try and make him sound, to try and make Gulliver sound like one of the regular travel books. You know, herein lies the tale of my journey. Not embellished at all. I thought that was funny. So the other little bit that I wanted to share with you is when he talked about, uh, he, it was just a cast off line about criminals being forced to see in a leaky vessel without provisions. This has happened in, in myth and in reality. And one of the first times that you hear about it in myth is the story of Danae, which is spelled D-A-N-A-E, and the E has an umlaut over the end. Danae's father, Acrisius, had learned from an oracle that he would be killed by his grandson and therefore shut Danae in a tower to keep men away from her since she could scarcely bear a son if she didn't have any help from a man. As it happened, the god Zeus fell in love with her and gladly supplied her with the help she needed, and she bore 
Perseus. Acrisius, terrified, dared not kill his grandson for fear of incurring a curse, so instead he locked mother and son in a chest which he cast into the sea, which I believe is where the Harry Hamlin version of Clash of the Titans starts, right? Right? I think it is. Boy, that's pulling it out of my memory because I haven't seen that since it came out. And of course, the hope is that they die of exposure, um, which they don't, and it being a Greek myth, Perseus does in fact kill Acrisius. Now, this also shows up in the Tempest. Sebastian overthrows Prospero, Duke of Milan. Sebastian does not quite dare to slay Prospero, but instead places the overthrown Duke with his daughter Miranda into the hull of a ship, hoping they will drown. Obviously, they don't, and vengeance is had at last. Now, one real case that's, uh, that's documented is 63 years after Gulliver's Travels is published in 1789, the crew of the Bounty mutinied and took over the ship. They did not kill Captain William Bly, whose severity had brought on the mutiny, but they placed him and some sailors loyal to him in an open boat with some supplies and abandoned them to the mercy of the sea. Bly, of course, survived, and uh, they navigated for 4,000 miles to the Indonesian island of Timor. He lived to see three of the mutineers hanged. So, what do we learn from this? We learn, don't think that putting people in a boat and setting them adrift in the middle of the open sea is going to solve your problems. I think that's the takeaway from today's episode. Don't do that. It's not going to work in your favor. So, with that happy thought, I leave you. (laughs) Have a great week. Next week, we start book three, which I am so excited about because you know nothing about it. I, I am almost willing to guarantee that you haven't heard anything about this section before, ever. And that is so cool. All right. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlet.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pot Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate. And all of them help keep Craftlit and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.